Good morning, everybody. This is an important day. About 2,500 years ago, there was a man named Siddhartha Gautama of the Shakya clan, and he realized enlightenment. He reached a point where the cycles of greed, hate, and delusion had ceased for him. He described it as a coolness, as a flame gone out. And then for the next 40 years, he taught us how to do this to relieve suffering. And these teachings have come down to us these 25 years for the benefit of us today. And every year we have been celebrating all this time, um, about this time of the year, um, his enlightenment. So we call this the Enlightenment Day. And uh, it's traditionally on the 8th, but um, we do things a little differently sometimes. And um, I want to talk a little bit about this experience, this enlightenment experience through the Buddha's words and through the many teachers who have interpreted and shared them with us. What he realized is that anybody can reach enlightenment anybody can experience and realize enlightenment for liberation of themselves and for others. In fact, not only can we, we will, we will. It's our nature. So we celebrate. And today, after this talk, we're going to have a celebration, as Gail mentioned, and we're going to do it in our fun way. So I hope you'll join us. This temple here is in the Soto Zen tradition. It uh, comes to us through Japanese, through, through the Japanese lineage. Our teacher, Roshi Galen, uh, was a student of our founder, Tenshin Reb Anderson, and he was a student of Shanryo Suzuki Roshi. So this is how the, the tradition comes to us, through this lineage of teachers all the way back to our founder, Dogen Zenji, Ehe Dogen Zenji, um, who studied in China and brought his realizations to Japan. We do things with the Texas flavor, though, <laughs> informed as we are by the Japanese tradition. We like to celebrate the Buddha's enlightenment together, which is, you know, this is a very old tradition. This is not just the way that we do it. Um, and we uh, have a, a, uh, a retreat, a sashin, that we do to bring us together in the days that lead up to what is traditionally the day of the Buddha's enlightenment. We're doing it on the third today, right, the ceremony. But traditionally, the enlightenment is set for December the 8th. Other schools have different days for the Buddha's enlightenment. And uh, it used to be a, a lunar holiday. It was always on the 12th, 12th month, eighth day of the 12th month. And you know, these lunar holidays travel around like Ramadan, like Easter. But uh, when Japan adopted the Gregorian calendar, it was nailed down to December the 8th. So, but yet yeah, we're taking some liberties with that. And it's okay to celebrate Enlightenment Day any day. Mm -hmm. So I mentioned this retreat, Rohatsu. For us, it begins on Tuesday, and it goes through Sunday. I think it's uh, the registration is, is 
close, but you can be there in spirit. And then on Sunday, there will be a talk um, from the land, from the retreat center. Um, and, and of course, you can participate in that. The Rohatsu is a little extra intensive, and it's uh, representing the Buddha's determination in these days up to his enlightenment. Um, a, another tradition is to stay up all night and meditating the night of en the enlightenment, just as the Buddha did, but it's optional. <laughs> <laughs> there, there was a, a handful of people who did it during Rohatsu a couple <laughs> years ago. Was anybody in that group? Okay, well, maybe we'll do it again. <laughs> what the story, uh, let me tell you the short version of the story of the Buddha's enlightenment day of the enlightenment. There's many tales, many stories that have filled up this experience with um, wondrous um, things. But essentially, the Buddha sat down at the base of a, a, a fig tree, a kind of fig tree. And he said, I'm not going to get up again until I understand reality and, and understand how to live with reality. And so some traditions say it was one day under the tree. Some say it was seven weeks under the tree. Some period of time passed in which he was continually learning more and more about the human nature and mind. And all of this has come to us through his teachings. Um, some of the stories include visitations by demons, angels, protecting snakes, um, the interpretation of the Buddha's doubt about his ability to to reach enlightenment um, includes him affirming that through touching the earth and having the earth respond um, and, and encouragement, flowers sell. Um, Mara, the personification of demon of, of delusion, sometimes um, represented as a demon, sent all his voluptuous daughters to tempt him, all his warlike sons to frighten him. Um, so the, the story of the Buddha's enlightenment is full of, of um, uh, like cinematic kinds of things. And in fact, you could see a, a movie, I think, Keanu Reeves was representing <laughs> the Buddha in a movie that's very entertaining. So, you know, you could see all the... The, uh, the myths come to life there. But uh, the essence of his experience is that in meditating through the night, observing his mind, becoming more and more released, more and more liberated, he looked up in the morning and saw the, the star, the, the Venus, and realized that um, everything was enlightened. And he, he said, this is wonderful. I and all things are enlightened, rich enlightenment together. So that's the story kind of in a nutshell. But what it doesn't uh, tell you is how hard the Buddha worked in the years up to this enlightenment experience. And so that's what I really want to look at today was this journey 
I think that the the cinematic version kind of makes him a religious genius. Perhaps he was, and you know, it just all of a sudden he became an enlightened person. But there was so much effort and detem- determination and intention that um, brought him along this path. So um, Siddhartha Gautama was a very sheltered prince, and in, in uh, the story of his childhood and how he became, how he renounced his life as a as a prince could be another talk. So I'm going to fast forward to the Buddha on the road, having given up all his possessions and his relations in the determination to find a way out of this continual cycle of suffering. He was he became like a wandering monk, a bhikkhu, at a time when a lot of people were out there on the road looking for liberation. And um, the, the story I'm going to tell largely comes from this little book by Karen Armstrong. It's called Buddha. And um, after I read it, I kept it because I liked the way that the author puts his life in context. And um, in context of the world at that time, going through a transformation in so many religions and so many philosophies, and also in his society. Uh, So, um, she's the scholar, I'm not. I'm parsing her words and her thoughts. The Buddha, uh, he wasn't the Buddha at the time, Gautama joined with um, a teacher, as was the practice at that time, the the bhikkhus, she suggests, had a, a kind of a bad reputation for being grifters and just, you know, there for the handouts at this point in time. And uh, so there was some pr- pr- uh, pressure on them to organize and say, this is my teacher, I'm studying with this person, and share that information amongst themselves and their societies. And so the Buddha, the Gautama, met his teacher through recommendations of other people. At that time, um, there were lots of schools of thought about how to release from suffering. And the the general thinking was that it was craving that was driving these circles of suffering. Um, And that if you could cease the craving, then you could be free. And another point was that in everybody, there was a sort of a kernel of the divine, Atman, or self, with a big self, with big S. There was a unchanging fixed self, maybe a soul is kind of a way of thinking of it as well. And that if one could focus on that soul, that Atman, and let everything else go, all the troublesome human parts, thinking, the body, and its problems, then there would be a kind of a uniting the divine, and then you could be free. There would be no more birth there would be no more endless rounds of suffering. This was a general idea, and then everybody, different schools had ideas of how one could make this happen. And the Buddha tried them out. His first teacher was Alara Kalama. And Alara Kalama believed that ignorance was the root of 
suffering and that if one could train one's mind away from uh, transient, limited, and unsatisfactory states of mind, then one could be freed. He had practices that were very cognitive, and the Buddha quickly mastered these and found that he was still no closer to relief. So he asked his teacher, how did you manage to become so pure and get these states of, of freedom just by these practices, which are um, didactic and not working for me? He asked his teacher very pointedly, and the teacher said, well, actually, I'm also doing these yoga practices. And so the Buddha was indoctrinated, uh, initiated into yoga practices as well. Yoga at that time, well, even now, doesn't necessarily mean what you, you get when you go to the gym. It was a very holistic system. And the first step in the practice of yoga was to establish a foundation of morality. There were five principles or yamas of morality, um, not to steal, not to lie, not to kill, not to take intoxicants, and not to misuse sexuality. For, for a lot of this, this will sound very familiar. And there were also body-mind practices uh, to, uh, to exercise, and they were scrupulous cleanliness, whatever that manifested in you know ancient India, study of the Dharma, of course, and cultivating serenity. This may also sound familiar. As students of Zen, um, we looked at our teachers and noticed they are really fastidious. They're clean. They study the Dharma. They have a sort of embodied serenity. So these practices from way back um, are still with us today and have value. There were also ascetic practices. Um, I, I don't see many of these being practiced, but I know in monastic communities of hundreds of years ago, people did practice um, enduring very cold, very hot, uncomfortable conditions, sitting in waterfalls in the winter, you know, things like that. And um, learning to control the hunger and thirst and, uh, you know, your inner thoughts, controlling words and gestures. These are uh, practices in this yogic tradition of an ascetic flavor. So after the Buddha was grounded in these ethics and body-mind uh, practices, he was ready for the next level, which was immovable sitting. And he took the seat just like this. This was the asana. Lots of us are sitting this way. And he didn't move. When we meditate, we do a lot of sort of breathing and we're blinking. And there's a lot of motion going on inside, outside. And um, in our temple, if you need to not sit like this, you can change your position mindfully, we encourage. But the Buddhist practice was like a statue, sitting like a statue, no motion at all. So it took a great level of control. That was the practice, was, the, was controlling the body. 
Then when he excelled at that and mastered that, he was taught trance states, um, uh, absorption, jhanas, and then levels of increasingly um, subtle awareness and penetrating the mind. All of these were done to uh, control the body and reveal the self at that time. This was all to reveal what, what is this divine part of ourselves. He was good at this. His teacher confirmed it as well. But he knew that this was not nirvana. Because when he was not practicing, he was still subject to the same desires and miseries as before. So he left his uh, practice with the teacher, even though the teacher encouraged him to stay. And he went to another teacher named Udaka Ramaputta. This is another teacher that he'd heard about, one that could access even more rarefied meditative states. And the Buddha was able to, with his teaching, um, experience these as well. But again, this was not nirvana. Because when he wasn't practicing them, he was still subject to desires. And he could see that he was creating this, the conditions to uh, be able to look into his mind, into mind. Uh, <laughs> and, and he was... He was still as much um, subject to cause and effect as before. So at this point, he decided he would change a different, to a different tactic. There were a lot of ascetics, and um, they, these are people who were looking for the self by practicing rigorously. No pleasures. Because pleasures give rise to, to craving and you want more pleasures and then the cycle continues. No pleasures and no possessions. They, he joined five other ascetics and they were doing austerities like um, attempting to stop breathing, um, stop eating, and um, laying out in the cold, you know, undressed. Just very uncomfortable situations. He was good at these practices, but he nearly killed himself. He uh, starved himself to the point where he said his, his ribs were like the rafters of a barn. He felt he could feel his spine through his belly. And when he stood up to pee, he fell over, passed out. And he heard people walking along the path, seeing him lying on the ground like that and saying, well, that one died. And he thought, oh, so this is not going to be beneficial to me. I am going to die before I reach this state of enlightenment. So um, it's interesting he could see the obvious, you know, and, and decide to take a course correction. Um, at that time, when he was very sick and ill and doubting, um, a woman came by and offered him a bowl of milk and rice and she brought it to him because she was making an offering she thought to a tree spirit in thanks for having a healthy baby boy and she saw the buddha sitting under the tree as the legend goes and said oh there's the tree spirit here you go <laughs> and so he was able to take a little bit of nourishment and get a little bit more strong and i imagine it took a while to convalesce 
from being so ill. And as he was convalescing, he was learning. He, he, he was learning about his previous experiences, learning about his mind, and wondering, where do I go from here? He remembered as a child, he'd had a, a, an experience with meditation uh, that was so sweet to him. He was about eight years old, and he was sitting under a tree watching his father in his community doing a uh, like a, a harvest ceremony or fertility ceremony and plowing the ground. And he had um, been temporarily temporarily left to himself, and he sat calmly and very happily and fell into this kind of joyful meditation. And he looked out onto the ground and he saw that. There were uh, worms in the ground and grasses that had been torn up, and he felt compassion for them. But the, the state was something that he had remembered years and years later and thought to himself, if a boy of about eight years old can do this, then it's probably innate. It's probably natural to everybody. And... Uh, he, he felt like maybe working with human nature, working with all the aspects of our body and mind was the path forward to enlightenment rather than trying to strip it away and burn it off and negate it. So this is how he began working from the time that he had the, um, the bowl of rice to the time that he reached enlightenment. To have my notes. There's a line in the vows of Dogen Zenji, who I mentioned, our founder. He says, Buddhists and ancestors of old were as we. We in the future shall be Buddhas and ancestors. And I like that line. I say it to myself almost daily because it's a great reminder that the Buddha, before he was enlightened, was like us, wondering, doubting eating wrong, you know, um, suffering, searching. The ancestors were like this too. All the ones who brought the teaching to us between the life of the Buddha and now. Everyone was like this. And in the future, we'll be Buddhists, we'll be ancestors as well. So before Siddhartha realized enlightenment, he was just like us. From the story, as I was reading it, I pulled out a few what I like to think of as pro tips. So the Buddha was practicing with others, just as we practice with others when we can. He was in communities that had a teaching and they had a practice and they worked together to realize it. Some of them were practicing in delusion, right? As the Buddha found out that this, sometimes the path forward was not going to be through that practice. But still, his being able to master the practices had an influence on everybody who was around him, probably encouraging them and giving feedback. And um, he was encouraged by the, them as well. So he was practicing in community. He was also practicing in solitude at times. 
like when he was a child and had that meditation experience, he said that he was alone at the time that um, if, if the whole festival had continued around him, he probably wouldn't have had the opportunity to settle to the point where he could have this meditation experience. So this is why we also sit in silence. We do retreats in silence in order to give ourselves the, the solitude to, to settle and be able to see. So community and solitude and also beneficial doubt. He had a lot of doubt that was driving him so forward. And uh, he, he allowed himself to question his teacher to move on to make changes because of that doubt. And then the, the next point is that he was incorporating what he had learned, what, what was, was good and beneficial into his teaching, into his worldview. So I mentioned several things that he learned from the ascetic, from the yogic teachers that came along with him. And now as in students, all these years later, they sound familiar because we practice them as well. There might be other points that y'all have noticed, and I look forward to discussing them with you after the break. But in conclusion, I, I bring you the story of the Buddha's journey with my inevitable biases and, and errors as encouragement to you. And to me, to be able to speak to you today is incredibly encouraging to my practice. So I thank my teacher for the opportunity and I'm paying it forward. So, in conclusion, happy Enlightenment Day to you. Yeah. <laughs>